Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Cornerstone. We are so glad that you're here today. If this is your first time, I encourage you to stop by Guest Services, located on the large pallet wall in the lobby. Our greeters would be happy to answer any of your questions, give you information about upcoming events and our ongoing programs, and we have a free gift for you to take home. We have so many fun events coming up in the next few weeks, starting with our family trip to Butcher's Family Fun Farm on Friday, October 25th. This event is open for families of all sizes, shapes, and ages. You can find more information and get more details on our website at cccduncannon.com events or at guest services in the lobby. Whether you've been coming to Cornerstone for a few weeks, a few months, or even a few years, we encourage you to check out our Next Steps class coming on Sunday, November 3rd, following the second service. This class will look at God's vision and mission for our church and how you can find your fit and get connected in the Cornerstone family. And if you're ready to jump in and officially partner at Cornerstone, I encourage you to sign up for our partnership class on Sunday, November 10th. Even if you're already connected at Cornerstone, you're invited to attend these classes and learn more about who we are and why we do what we do. You can find more information at guest services in the lobby or sign up on our website at cccduncannon.com events. Today is Communion Sunday, and we'll take some time at the end of the service to remember and reflect on what Jesus did for us with his sacrifice on the cross. As part of our communion celebration, we take a special offering that benefits our Benevolence Fund. This fund enables us to help community members in financial need. This offering will be taken at the end of both services at the back doors. Thanks for coming, everyone. Have a great week. morning. How are you today? <laughs> Such a stupid question because nobody can actually say I'm, I'm burning to the ground. Thanks for asking. Uh, my name is Dave Sherwood. I'm the lead pastor here at Cornerstone. Welcome you to our uh, service today. We are in a series where we're talking about Satan. And we're going to get to that here in a second. It's the second week of the series. Um, but what I'm going to do here, first of all, is say, hey, if you are a non-believer, just consider these things. If you are kind of a Christian that's taken a vacation from God, uh, there might be a reason why you took that vacation. You might have listened to, to Satan a bit. And um, my point is, is simply this, that Satan is this person in the Bible that we're told kind of works around and is trying to destroy everything that God has intention and plans for. 
And it's important in Scripture, he's kind of described in such a way that you can defend yourself from him. But how you defend yourself is going to be what we talk about today. So we're all going to just pray for insight and wisdom from God and his word and his spirit. If you'll bow your heads, shut your eyes, and just pray along in your minds with me. Father God, we come to you, and we realize, Father, that we desperately need help. There's evil out there, and sometimes there's evil inside of us. We ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit and your word would lead, guide, and direct us. We might know the schemes of Satan, and we might know your wisdom about how to defend ourselves. And we pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus the Christ and all God's people said, amen. Okay, so um, in the first service, I didn't do a, a, a great job of this, but um, I was in junior high. So I, I, I moved from fifth grade to sixth grade. And I was in some sort of advanced classes thing. I said AP, but apparently in middle school you're not in AP. So I wasn't in AP classes. I was in something. Allegedly, I was smart, or so they thought. <laughs> but what happened was this. So there's some things going on at my, at my house. My, my parents are having some, some issues. I've, I've moved from fifth grade to sixth grade, so there's all these new kids, new stuff going on. And these advanced classes that I'm in... One's kind of an English one, and one's a biology one. Um, and I'm also taking a foreign language, German. I, I start crashing and burning in all three of the classes. And I'd really just kind of skipped along, never really studied, did much of anything, and gotten great grades up until that point in time. But I'm, I'm crashing and burning, and so I go to see my biology teacher, and my biology teacher says this, says, maybe you shouldn't have taken the class. Now, I don't know how you would take that. You know, maybe if they said, hey, this is some study skills, or here's a study group, or what can I do, or where are you? That's not really where he went with everything. He went to this other place, and the thing that rang out inside of my mind was, you're too stupid for this class. And then you add up the fact that I'm flunking out of German, and you add up that I'm not doing well in these other classes, and that kind of resonates with me. I'm, I'm not that smart. What do you think it does to somebody when they come to that sort of conclusion? Not I'm not smart in this one subject matter, but when they start to say something categorical like, I'm not smart. Now, what does it do to you? Now, I'm not questioning your intelligence. I'm questioning the way you may have labeled yourself because of something somebody said. I'm not attractive, or I'm not worthy of relationship, or I'm a failure as a parent, or I'm, and the list just goes on and on and on. And what does it do to your whole life if in your mind and in your heart you've got these massive accusations that Satan doesn't even need to come and attack you with because you're already attacking yourself? Uh, Satan's a term we're used to hearing, you know, Satan. It, it's really the Satan, and it really means 
the adversary, and there's two things particularly that I want to talk about in terms of his adversariness today. One is that he tempts, and, and the other is that he accuses. So what happens? What's he trying to accomplish? Well, he's trying to wedge you away from God. That's part of what he's trying to accomplish. But the other thing that he's trying to accomplish is he's trying to get you to self-destruct in your heart and in your mind. It's not just to accuse you of something. You know, we, we get accused of things and sometimes we're defensive or sometimes we rationalize things or sometimes we say that's your problem. But if we buy the accusation, because Satan doesn't really have to lie a whole lot about some of the things that we accuse ourselves of. We give him the ammunition. And so Satan really speaks this truth to us that we hammer ourselves with for years and years and years. And the tragic thing is it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I'm in sixth grade and I'm convinced that I'm stupid. And so I have all of my grades start to collapse. Now a curious thing happened. I'm coming into ninth, tenth grade and I'm sent to a a psychiatrist, um, psychologist. And uh, they give me a battery of tests. And one of the tests they give is an IQ test. And the weird thing is I scored actually pretty high for the IQ test. I know it's shocking to all of you. But but I scored pretty high. And so I'm trying to reconcile. I failed these classes. I must be stupid. This IQ thing says something else, though. And you'll find that sometimes that accusation is a lie. But when you find out the truth, the truth doesn't necessarily just dislodge that lie instantaneously. That truth has to be proven out. So some of the lies and accusations that Satan comes at you with are going to take some time. You're going to have to invest some time to push those out and to let something else in. And I'll show you what we're going to let in here in a minute. So we have this thing. We have this thing in Scripture where Jesus is tempted by the devil. And so the question becomes, why do we have this in Scripture? Because as we see in the example of how Jesus is responding to Scripture, we we see him kind of out in the desert, and we see Satan show up, and we don't know if it's in the form of a Satan or or a serpent or something else, but we think, you know, I'm I'm not necessarily in the desert, and the things that Satan says, you know, what's, what's that got to do with me? It's important for you to understand what Jesus does when he gets tempted by Satan, how he defends himself, because your circumstances are going to be different. But the means by which you defend yourself is the same. Jesus told this story to the disciples. He must have told it to the disciples because there's no witnesses to the story. He's led out and he's tempted by Satan. So he passes the story on to the disciples because he wants them to understand something about who their enemy is and what that enemy is going to try to do. There's different things in Scripture. Uh, there's a, a term like, how has Satan so filled your heart? And there's other times where it talks about mind. And so we don't know exactly how it all works, but your heart and your mind are under assault. So it says this in Matthew 4, 
1 through 2. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and for 40 nights, he was hungry. So we learn a couple of things. This is a very compact set of verses that we're going to be going through, but there's a lot going on. So one is that Jesus is purposefully led by the Spirit in order for all of this to happen. Well, why would the Spirit do such a thing? Well, part of it is to prove who Jesus kind of is and to validate the beginning of his ministry, but part of it's also understand this will happen to you. In fact, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, Satan has decided, has asked to sift you like wheat. Now, what's the good that can come from something like that? Then you find out the chaff of who you are and the kernel of the seed of who you truly are when you get sifted. The question becomes, if you're sifted, what's really ruling and reigning in your heart and in your mind? So it's not necessarily... A bad thing. But the other thing that I want you to notice about this is that he fasts for 40 days and for 40 nights and he's hangry, right? And I want you to start to think about where is a perfect place to tempt you? We talked last week about, you know, where's Satan maybe poking around in your life. But today I'm asking, where are the very specific time slots? I'll give you an example. So one church that I was at in Ohio, we were kind of connected to the college. And so I would tell the college students, hey, college students, you know, none of you ever call me at 7 a.m. Just, just don't. They just don't call me at 7 a.m. And I said, you know, none of you call me at, at noon. I never get a call at noon. But between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m., there's a mess of phone calls. Why? Well, that's the witching hour, right? That's, that's poor decision-making incorporated hour. How about you? For some people, it's when they're so stressed out workaholic. For some of you, it's when you're bored. For some of you, it's right after you've been crushed by your boss or your spouse. Where are the places where Satan can sneak in doing what we talked about last week? He does. He's going to act like your best friend and he's got solutions. That's what he's going to do. Where are you vulnerable to steal something, to have an affair, to look at porn, to whatever? Because you've got to start to guard those time slots. You've got to start to be aware. This is when the sniper is coming. This is when the serpent is coming. So he's out there for 40 days. He's super hungry. And Satan shows up. And what does Satan do? It says this. It says, Then the tempter came, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become Loaves of bread. Now, the one thing that he's doing is he's asking a question, sort of rhetorically, sneaky-like. If you are, it might work like this in your life. If you are a Christian husband, you wouldn't be doing thinking these things. If you were a Christian wife, you wouldn't be doing... If you are a Christian employee, if you are a whatever it is, if, if whatever we think our connection to God is, he's questioning it. 
You're not really connected to Jesus. You're not really worshiping. I mean, you're disconnected most of the time. You never bother to read your Bible. It's not like you're sitting around worshiping in your car. It's not like you're praying. You're playing video games. You're on social media. You got your hobbies. You're in the deer stand. You're doing all kinds of things. Don't act like this thing is real because it's not, right? That's part of the play. But then notice the other part of the play that he wants to put in. He says, look, you're hungry. If, 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 you, if you've got the resources, just do this thing. Just turn that stone into bread. And what does that look like for you and I? You've got resources. If you're hungry, if you're angry, if you're desperate, if you're hurting, if you're depressed, there's a whole list of things I would like to hand you. Because you know what? Nobody's going to take care of you. God's not going to take care of you. You've got to take care of yourself. Part of what Satan's trying to do is he's trying to infect you with the virus that he has. And the virus that he has is pride and vanity, autonomy. Some of this really fits the American dream, right? Self-made man. I'm independent and I don't need nobody's help. And great, you've, you've bought. You bought it. You've, you've bought the lie. He's trying to get you to act autonomously so that you eat and buy and think and say and do and touch whatever you want. Your senses, your feelings become the driver of your life. Take care of those things. Feed them by whatever means necessary. And notice what Jesus comes back with. Jesus says this, but he answered, it is written. Man doesn't live by just bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, there's some interesting things here. One is, Jesus blows off the identity question completely. He's not, he's not going to buy into that at all. But the second thing is he, he does is he starts to reference where he stands in the universe. Jesus says, me? I'm not making decisions autonomously. I'm not enslaved to my whims or my mood or my instincts or my senses. I'm connected to something else. And that something else is how I make my decisions. And that something else is God and what God says. Now, here becomes the interesting question. The interesting question becomes, when Satan comes at us with all kinds of different things, do we know what the Word of God says so that we can defend ourselves with what the Word of God says? Or are we going to rationalize or defend ourselves? It's basically something like this. You know, you, there's the, the joke about bringing a knife to a gunfight. Well, if you... If you're going to encounter Satan, and candidly, it, Scripture makes it pretty obvious that sooner or later you are on multiple levels in your life. And you may have a gun, but you don't have any ammo. And you're clicking away because you don't have Scripture hidden in your heart and in your mind. 
We're going to take communion later in the service. And what's going to happen is there's going to be a bunch of scripture references and there's going to be some things up there like I am a child of God and I am adopted by God and I'm justified by God and I am made holy by Jesus and all these sort of things. But the question is going to become, is that real? Does that have any visceral, gut-level strength in your life or does it not? It's not just can you find a chapter and verse. Can you find that truth activated in your mind and in your heart in such a way that it pushes back against Satan? So when Satan comes and he doesn't even need to lie, and he says, David, you're a, you're a complete screw-up. You're, you're the dumpster fire of dumpster fires. You're the, the demotivational poster, the first one on the internet Google searches, your face. And I go, yeah, I'm, I'm adopted by God. I'm immersed in God. I'm, I'm made one with God. I, I, I'm in his family. So whatever issues you have with me about my failures, it's taken care of by the cross, but you can go talk to my daddy about it all you want. And that's got to be real. Because if you're still rehearsing what Satan says as self-accusation, he doesn't even, he could be on vacation in, in the Bahamas because you're, you're getting the job done yourself. Do you have scripture hidden in your heart and in your mind? After that doesn't go great, then the devil took him to the holy city and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And then he said to him, if you are this son of God, then throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. We all the way to that verse yet? One, one, one slide forward. There we go. So what's going on here? Satan is basically saying, hey, Jesus, let me get this straight. So you just quoted a bunch of scripture and you said, you know, that your life is not you're driven by your instinct and your senses, but by every word from, from God. So here's the deal. If you're, if you're the son of God, if you're, if you're real tight with God, then here's what you ought to do. Notice what he says. Well, take you up to this high place, you jump off, and God will catch you. Why will God catch you? Well, because he's promised to, right? I mean, all of you that have been you know, biblical folk for a while, Christians for a while, you know that there's promises in the Word of God. And one of the promises that God has is to protect. Now, here's where things get interesting, right? Protect you from what? Like, is it 24-7? Is it protect from paper cuts? Is it protect from hurt feelings? To, to what extent protection? And then you start to do a little mind jumble because you start to realize, oh, he doesn't like protect me from everything. Oh, now that's interesting. Because if you jump off of this place and God catches you, here's, here's the first thing that happens. Aha, what I can do is I can utilize any part in God's word and utilize it as a promise and I can enslave God to his promises and he's got to come through 24-7. That's the trick of what Satan's trying to do. But the other works just as well. If you jump off and God doesn't catch you, then he gets to stand over you and say, you idiot, I told you, you're not tight with him. It's a win, win, win. Because it depends on how it's all framed, right? When he says, you're real tight with God, right? Then this should happen if you're real tight with God. Jesus' response is this. 
Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to a test. So if in the first thing that Satan does is Satan says, you got to take care of yourself. The second thing that Satan has tried to do is, is to get Jesus to enslave God to his promises. It's not that you shouldn't depend on his promises and trust his promises. You just need to understand what those were intended to do. I've probably had my life saved by God like 10,000 times. I don't necessarily know or recognize all of them. But, you know, when things have gone really bad, do you think I've stuck my hand up in the air and said, you weren't there for me? Yeah. And yet I know that pain and suffering is part of how we mature and how we grow and that even in the midst of my pain and suffering, then I have all this wisdom to bequeath on Sunday mornings. That's why I try to screw up so much so I can help you. Help me help you. But notice again the way Jesus has put this into play. He says his reference point is God's word. Now notice Satan had quoted God's word. And Jesus pushes back against Satan's wrong assumption and interpretation about God's word. He says, you know what? God the Father is is not to be tempted not to be tested. That's not the way this works. He doesn't answer to me. I answer to him. Very different way of living life. Because obviously if God answers to me, that pride vanity thing that we talked about with the first little run of temptations, that's still completely active. But if I answer to God, then my suffering might have meaning. My persecution might have meaning. My pain might have purpose and meaning. There might be a lot more going on than just protection. Do we think this way? I don't know about you. I I remember making a poor decision with some scotch. And I remember expressing myself to a round bowl about that. And I remember looking up and saying, if you get me out of this, I'll be a missionary to Uganda. (laughs) But that's not the way it works, right? It's not just about desperation. It's not about just clinging to God's promises when it's convenient. It's not just about making deals. Speaking of making deals, this is what happens in Matthew 4, 8 through 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. The devil went down to Georgia. He was willing to make a deal. He was in a bind because he was way behind. And he, okay. This thing happens all the time in literature where there's this deal to be made with the devil, whether you're ghost rider or whether it's Faust or whether it's Jesus. Oh, what's the, what's the deal? Well, there's some sort of trade-off. Satan says, I have a certain amount of power and authority in this world, and what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to deposit all those things over here with you if you'll just worship me. And we talked about worship last week, and it's important to understand it's not about devil worship, like, oh, I'm going to get in the backyard and get baby goat and make, get, get blood out, make pentagram and get a bunch of candles and go, oh, Satan, you're so awesome. Thank you for my Maserati. That doesn't work. That's not a thing. What does worship mean? It means to ascribe worth to something. 
What does it mean to ascribe worth to Satan? It means to buy into his perspective of autonomy, pride, vanity, ego, selfishness. So when I say there's all kinds of people that are Satan worshipers, you can look out at our American culture and you can go, yeah. And the tricky thing is you may be able to look at your bank account and the way you're spending your time and the things that you paste on Facebook and all kinds of other things, and you may be in the exact same place. Satan wants people to value his perspective on things. Are you going to push back or not? And Satan, then Jesus says to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This is Jesus punching him in the face, saying, You can't, you can't offer me anything. And A, you're a liar, so I, you know, it doesn't even really matter what you offer me. Because in every story you read in literature, again, the people that make these devil's deals, they never turn out right. There's always some lie, there's always some hiccup in the contract but more than that Jesus is going to get all of this Jesus is going to be king of this world he's going to acquire everything anyways the difference is immediacy do we want things right here right now yeah love or lust financial wisdom Or just go buy stuff on eBay and figure it out later. How are we going to live our lives? It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. God's plan for my life is beyond my pay grade. And what I mean by that is he's got a better plan for my life than I do. How do I know this? Because I've stuck my hand in the blender enough times to know better. My plans, my plans are stupid and selfish. His plans bring deep peace, deep joy, deep suffering, deep empathy, deep sacrifice, deep character, deep weight, gravity, strength. And so the trick question becomes something like this. When these accusations come and they start getting rehearsed in your mind and you start attacking yourself and you are walking through life with this selfishness and then all of a sudden the truth of the gospel comes in. And all of these things that God has said are potential ammunition to fight back against Satan. If we hide them in our minds and in our hearts, and they're activated and vibrant and alive enough so that they can push back. And then when we're tempted by all the things that we're tempted by, we can say, you know what? My daddy's got better gifts for me, better plans for me than you. And the singularity of my worship, what I ascribe value to, well, it's not the world. The world's stupid. And candidly, it's not me because I've proven myself stupid. And it's sure not going to be you, Satan, because you're like double stupid. But you know what? I'm going to worship God because he made everything. 
And he sent his son. And his word has been proven true. And he's given me his Holy Spirit. And he's adopted me. And he's entered me into his family. And he's given me church. And I'm at my best when I'm connected to him. And I'm at my brightest and my wisest when I'm flowing with him. That's what I'm going to worship. So here would be some concluding remarks. Responding to the tempter. When the tempter and the accuser comes to you through whatever in your heart and in your mind, defend your identity with what God says. God says I'm his child. God says I'm forgiven. God says the good work that he started in me, he will bring to completion. God says there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. That's what God says. You can say all you want to me, Satan, about what a tool and what a jerk and what a failure and what an idiot I am because it doesn't matter. My daddy loves me anyways. My daddy's transforming me. My daddy's going to take me into glory someday and make me perfect. You, you just want to destroy me. Defend yourself. Secondly, trust that what you need will come from God. I said need, not want. What you need can come from God. Can you be homeless and have joy? Yeah. Francis of Assisi did it. Can you be the persecuted church and live in joy and wonder? Yeah. Can you be in prison like Paul and Silas were and sing songs in the night after having been tortured? Yeah, you can. If you're not addicted to this world and its possessions trying to make you happy, and the only thing that makes you happy is God and his love for you, you're free. You're a dangerous, liberated person. But if we're trapped by accusations and we're trapped by feeding our own selfishness, we're a weak person and Satan knows this. God will take care of my needs. And I know he won't necessarily take care of my wants because he wants me to be a more substantial person than a person that's self-indulgent about everything I want. Third, don't trade your worship for anything. God's a jealous God. What does that mean? Is it, he's sitting up there being... No, he, he's a jealous God in the sense that he knows that he alone can satisfy that God-shaped vacuum in your heart and mind. He knows that everything that you substitute for him is going to drive you into the ground. It's not going to satisfy. It's going to break and maim you. And Satan is constantly throwing these things in front of you. Get another degree, get another job, get another spouse. God is worshipped alone. And when it tips, when the balance scales tip, and what's going on in your life is this deep connection to God in worship, deep connection to God in prayer, deep connection in fellowship and servanthood, deep connection in, in the fellowship of believers. When the, when the tipping happens, you start to realize, man, that life that I used to lead, that was that had all kinds of stupid written on it. And I don't have my act all together, but over here, this is life. This is momentum. This is passion. This is joy. This is me at my best. This is what God intended. That's why I worship him. A quote is this, the glory of God is man fully alive. That's what he wants to do. Satan, Satan just wants to test and tempt your selfishness. I'm going to pray here in just a second. 
I'm going to pray about some of this. And then we're going to be taking communion. So what's going to happen is while I'm praying, the ushers will probably be sneaking up the center aisle. They'll dismiss you by aisles. You'll, you'll come up and you'll come over to take the, the bread and the cup. And then you'll make your way back to your seats and we'll take communion together. But while we're doing that, while we're coming up, there's going to be some things up on the screen. There's going to be a, a verse notation, a kind of a summary of what that verse is all about. These are the sort of things that you have to hide in your heart to fight against Satan. So let me pray, and then the ushers will come forward, and you'll get your communion stuff, and then we'll take communion together. Father God, we come before you, and we recognize, Father, that we, um, well, we buy a lot of the ideas of this guy. Father, there's a lot of selfishness in us, a lot of sensuality in us, a lot of pride in us, And yet, Father, we know that those things all create nothing but death and ashes. So we confess them, Father, and we ask for you to replace them with your word. May your word tell us who we are. May your word love us. May your word give us wisdom and righteousness. May who you are tell us who we are. Protect us from the evil one, for sure, God. But also, Father... Arm our hearts and our minds with your truth so that we are ready to stand against the evil one. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. And all God's people said...